0: When was the last time somebody told you how you should live? For some of you, it was when I told you to sit further uh, um, away from the back and sit close to the front. But, but, but most of you, I suspect, would have been when you went to university. Uh, you had to work, work out what you were going to study, right? So you've got to ask the question, should I do this course or this course? And there would have been a lot of opinions, maybe from your career advisor, definitely from your parents, kind of pointing you in certain directions. You should do this because of the jobs at the end of it, the financial security that it'll give you. Uh, You should do this because it's your passion. You need to follow your dream. This is the thing that you will enjoy. Now, most of the time, uh, we welcome this sort of advice. Because if we're honest, we have no idea what we're doing with our lives. We still don't, even now that we're at university. Uh, And so any advice that we can get about how we should live our life is welcome. But when people start telling us to live in a way that we don't want to, that's when things get a bit tense, don't they? Because we don't like people telling us what to do. Now, throughout human history, this has been the case, but I think in the last couple of decades, this has really been cranked up to 11 uh, because we've been raised with this constant message into our ears that we define our own truth and that nobody else has the right to define it for us. In our society, the greatest crime that you can commit is to tell somebody else how they should live. And yet... Every time you share the Christian gospel, that is precisely what you are doing. You are saying that everything they believe about the world, about them, about the world's purpose, about their purpose in it, if it's not defined and constrained by the person and work of Jesus Christ, then they are living the wrong way. And by implication, you are living the right way. Now, our society has a word for that kind of flex. It's called arrogance. Uh, and this is the thing that we might come across today's passage we've been working through one corinthians at public meeting in the last couple of weeks and in today's passage paul says something that is just really quite a doozy he he claims to be wiser than all the wisdom in all the world now for those of you who've been coming over the last few weeks that might come as a surprise to you because over the last two weeks really from chapter 1 verse 17 until uh, the end of chapter 2 paul has been trashing wisdom Philosophy, pointless, useless. It's a failed discipline. And the thing that he's been trying to tell us is it's because the foolish message of the cross of Christ was designed to destroy the wisdom of the world. Not be better than it, not beat it at its own game and get like a 98 instead of the world's wisdom, which gets a 97 or whatever, but destroy it. Show it to be completely futile and pointless. And the Corinthians had forgotten this. And so like magpies, they were kind of drawn to whatever looked wise and strong and influential and impressive and shiny. They just couldn't get their eyes off the fanciness. And Paul says to them, don't go there. Stay foolish. Because if you don't, you'll undermine everything that God is doing in the cross. He is destroying the world's wisdom. And yet today he flips things on its head. And he says that the necessary foolishness of the cross is actually wisdom. And it's a wisdom that is unlike anything that we have seen in this world. And that is a big call. Basically what he does is he swoops in and he overturns the conclusions of the world's brightest thinkers. And you've got to remember Corinth, it's right near Athens. This is sort of like ancient Greece. This is the birthplace of the world's greatest philosophers. You're studying philosophy on campus. You take your lead from them. And so here is this unimpressive nobody from Israel And he walks into this hotbed of philosophical reflection, that is Corinth, and he says to them, you're all wrong. And I'm right. I'm the wise one. You're the fools. And it's kind of hard to see when Paul says that, how he can say that without being the most self-righteous and arrogant man on the planet. Now those words I've just used, self-righteous, arrogant, they're terms that are used against Christians So let me ask you, have you ever felt that as a Christian, as you've shared the gospel, that that's what you're doing or or that that's what people are thinking of you? Does it make you timid, silent, fearful of being declared arrogant? And it raises a question, I think, in our minds. What is it that gives us as Christians the confidence to declare to a rebellious world that it is rebellious? And to do it without straying into cocky arrogance. That's today's question. That's the thing that we're going to seek to answer. That impossible conundrum between how we can both be fanatically committed to the truth and yet be humble as we do so. And to answer that conundrum we need to do uh, several things in this passage but primarily what we need to do is understand the ways in which the message of the cross the thing that paul has been talking about up until now how that message is a message of wisdom and we're going to do that by beginning with paul's statement and they're there in your outline if you're taking notes that the message of the cross is a message of wisdom which is not of this age So let's let's have a read. Let's have a look at uh, verses 6 to 9. So what Paul says, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written... What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. As you scan your eyes over those verses, Paul's main point here is that the wisdom that he has in the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a wisdom of this present evil age. I'm adding that word in there. It's basically describing the age between Adam and Eve's sin, the beginning of creation. And Christ's return when he comes to restore all things, remove all sin, make the world perfect again. And the world in this current age is in rebellion against God. And because of that, it can't understand the wisdom of God. So if you took all of humanity's greatest thinkers uh, across history, you put them into a room together for a thousand years. What Paul is saying is they would not make a single iota of progress toward what is revealed in the gospel. The gospel's wisdom is entirely alien to anything that we could conceive or imagine. No man created it. No woman developed it. We didn't find it as we studied our prehistoric ancestors. We didn't discern it as we studied the movement of the planets. Verse 6, it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. And we know that because of verse 8. What does it say there? It says that none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. In other words, if they had understood God's wisdom, then when Jesus became incarnate, God became man, and they saw him, they would have seen him for who he truly was, God's glorious Messiah. But as it is, what do they see? Well, they saw a hillbilly from the sticks, because that's where he was coming from in Israel up north, and he was upsetting the peace, and so they decided he was worthy of death. And they killed him. They did not have a clue. And that's because the wisdom of the gospel doesn't belong to this age. It belongs to God. We see that there in verse 7. It is God's wisdom. And interestingly, it's a wisdom that has been hidden since before time began, literally before the ages. So the gospel, it's God's secret wisdom. And we see there in verse 7 that it has been reserved for our glory. Now, what Paul is referring to here is the glorious new age where Christ reigns and his people reign with him In glory Uh, it is an age characterized by glory and though it's not limited to it includes our glorious resurrection bodies and we know this because of one of the few other places that paul uses the word glory in 1 corinthians it's in 1 corinthians chapter 15 verse 43 and that's where he tells us that our current earthly bodies will die in dishonor he talks about them as seeds they're sown in dishonor but they're raised grown in glory just as jesus own body was And so what Paul is talking about here in this hidden mystery uh, of of, of wisdom before time began uh, is God's ultimate plan for those who are found in Christ. When the present age is brought to nothing, when God's judgment is dispensed and the new age is ushered in for an eternity. You see, verse 6, this age is coming to nothing. But verse 9, what no eye has seen and what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived the things God has prepared for those who love him. You see, the secret and hidden wisdom of God that no one could ever have deduced or guessed, it's the plan of God to bless his people and to take his glory and share it with us as well. It is a beautiful picture, a picture of the Christian hope, a world characterised by glory and not by pain or disease or insecurity or mental illness. The world will be right again that's the the wisdom that we're seeing here but but let me ask you what's the problem with that picture what's the problem with that wonderful plan that we've just seen described it's got to be that if nobody can work it out then nobody benefits from it right apparently UWA has hundreds of scholarships that nobody applies for because nobody knows they exist Can you just imagine, there's that much free money floating around the place that you could just take advantage of, but because nobody knows about it, nobody's got it. Can you imagine how many extra HSPs you could get after PM, just just with that extra stuff that you would save? And yet, despite the superior wisdom, despite the promise of unimaginable blessing, this wonderful hidden wisdom of God, we can't get at it. And that's why verse 10 is so important for us. Because if it's to benefit anybody then it needs to be revealed. That leads us to the second heading. The message of the cross is a message of wisdom revealed by the Spirit. Let's have a look at verse 10 and verse 11. Referring to those wonderful things that no mind has conceived, he says, These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thought except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. You see, because it's God's wisdom, it can only be revealed by God's Spirit. And we know this is true because of the analogy Paul uses here in the passage. So it's time to air some pet peeves. How, I hope you, you agree with me on this one. How annoying is it? Like How infuriating is it when somebody presumes to know what you're thinking, finishes your sentences for you, tells other people what your opinions are, and then misrepresents you? Acts if they completely understand you, but never even bother to ask. And they go off and they just kind of start announcing it to other people. It's just presumptuous and a little bit arrogant, isn't it? And it's so frustrating. You don't know me. Only I know me. The only person who knows what I'm thinking right now is my own spirit. Now, Paul is not making some sort of weird anthropological point here where there's like kind of the body mat and then there's the spirit mat and we kind of cohabit one another and there's this weird sort of kind of He's not trying to kind of say that, even though for some of you, you might be thinking, oh, maybe there is something going on there for Matt, we need to calm down there. What he's doing is he's just pulling the analogy out to say that the only one who has access to the thoughts of God is the inner being, the spirit of God. No one outside of him can do that. And at this point, I think you begin to empathise with some of the accusations of arrogance that the world throws at Christians, yeah? What makes you think you've got it right You aren't God. You're just like me. And I want to say as far as that objection goes, they are spot on. You are not God. You cannot know his thoughts. But here's the thing. You can if he tells you. And that's precisely what happens. Have a look at verse 12. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Now I want to stretch you guys today. So I've got a question for you. It's up here on the screen. Um, who does the we refer to in verse 12? So 30 seconds with the person next to you. Have a go at trying to answer that question, the we and the us. Who does it refer to? Well, that should be enough to whet the appetite. Um, Hopefully it's got you thinking and looking at the passage uh, more closely. I think the way that we understand the we here significantly changes the way that we understand this passage. And I think there are two options. I think either Paul is talking about Christians in general, um, or he's talking about himself and his merry band of apostles. Uh, I think we've got to be really careful here, because I think if you just look at the passage, it, it could very easily be both of them. And the danger that we have here is that we assume that as we read it, the we always refers to us. And so as we read the Bible, every time we see an eye, we're just like, oh, isn't this great that God is talking about me right now? And you kind of keep reading and your you, you quiet times and your mornings. Oh, look, the next chapter, God's talking about me again. Isn't this fantastic? And then as you kind of sip through, like you just start to begin to think that this is a book written directly to you and your situation without any need to, to kind of work out how God might have been writing to the original recipients and then work out how it then applies to you. And, and that's our danger. Uh, and it's our danger, especially as we read the letters to the Corinthians, both one and two, uh, because Paul and the Corinthians were having some pretty significant relationship issues. Paul was an apostle of God, he'd come, he'd given them the gospel. But because he wasn't particularly impressive, the Corinthians didn't really know what to do with him. And so they're like, OK, Paul, um, we're, not, we're not sure that we're, we're really cool with this. And so he spends a lot of time in relationship counselling. Uh, and because of that, he's, he uses a lot of I and we and you and them language. I I love you, and I want you to come and do this thing for me. And so when he uses the word we, he's not necessarily talking about me and you, Corinthians, but we as the apostles who came to you. In other words, he spends a lot of time in dialogue defending the authenticity of his apostolic ministry. So there's a lot of us and them framing. And what makes this passage so difficult is I think that both things are actually happening here. There's the I versus you uh, language, But there's also the we, as in all of us, Paul and Christians, all Christians. And because both of those things are kind of happening here in the passage, it means that the Spirit's work here in revealing God's mystery is actually two works and not one. So what are they? Well, the first is the work of revelation, where God's hidden wisdom is finally revealed by his Spirit to his chosen messengers at a particular point in history. It ceases to be hidden and becomes known. But that's the first work, the work of revelation. There's also the work of illumination, that work where the Spirit enables people throughout history to hear God's wisdom and when they hear it, to accept it as true. So here's what I think is happening. Have a look at the passage. We'll begin at verse 6. You'll notice the passage begins by saying, but we do speak a message of wisdom. And what's Paul just been talking about? This is where you crack out your Bibles and you look outside of the passage. And what do you see in the first five verses of chapter 2? Well, he's just been talking about his preaching to the Corinthians. He's just come to them. He's described how he brought the gospel to them. He's talking about himself here. So verse 6, we, Paul, and the people who came with him. It's the same with verse 7. We declare God's wisdom. We keep shifting through. We get down to verse 10 and it says, these are the things that God has revealed to us by his Spirit And I don't think the us here is every believer. I think the us here is uh, Paul and the apostles, God's appointed messengers. I think this is the complete and definitive revelation of the hidden wisdom of God. The thing that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind conceived. That's the thing that has been finally revealed at a definitive point in history to God's apostles. Now, when we get to verse 12 which is the question at hand things get a little bit hazy because it could still go either way right you can read it and you can sort of imagine it as like paul's received this thing but then the corinthians have received it from him or it could just still be paul talking about him having received it from god and having the spirit of god to enable him to understand uh, and for my money i would tentatively say that we're still talking about paul here i think there's a lot of ways and it's basically paul because when we get to verse 13 which is the next verse what do we see we're back to this is what we speak So it's kind of weird if there's a subject change. Again, it's a reference to Paul and his preaching. Uh, And so it completely flips the way that we understand what's going on here, doesn't it? Now, regardless of what you decide about verse 12, I think it's really important that we have eyes to see that there are two things going on in this passage and not just one. The Spirit is not merely illuminating minds to accept the truth of the gospel. That is true. It's necessary. It definitely happens in our next section, verses 14 to 15, so sit tight. But the Spirit of God has also, in the first instance, taken the hidden wisdom of God and he's revealed it to the apostles, those who he has declared are his official heralds, the ones that will speak it then to others. Now, if you want this kind of concept elsewhere in the Bible, you can go to somewhere like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, uh, where we see that God's household is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ as the cornerstone. And in fact, as we read through Paul's letters to the churches, most of them begin by his declaring that he is an apostle, including this particular letter. And he does that because what he's saying is that the things that he writes come with the authority of God, because God has revealed those things to him. With me so far, it's a bit more complex, but it's really important to get to. Why am I laboring this point? I'm laboring it because it has significant implications for how we regard the Bible. Because if we want God's revelation, we want to know his wisdom, then we need to go through the apostles, which means we need to go through those things that God caused them to write down before they died for our ongoing benefit. In other words, to get to God's wisdom, we need to go through our Bibles. You see, simply having the Spirit of God, which every Christian does have, does not mean that every sense and feeling or thought or opinion that you have comes with the same authority As the scriptures. It's not that what this passage says is not true of you in some way, because in verse 10, yes, God has revealed his plan to you. Verse 12, you do have the Spirit so you can understand what he freely gives you. Verse 16, if you are a Christian, you do have the mind of Christ. Paul and the apostles, they don't have a monopoly on wisdom. Every Christian understands the wisdom of God because they have the Spirit of God. But here's the key point you got that wisdom from somewhere, didn't you? And where did you get it? You got it from here. Oh, no, 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 my pastor told me. Where did the pastor get it? He got it from here. It comes from the apostles. Our wisdom, then, is derivative and dependent, always. It's true, but it's dependent. Dependent on the revelation that God gives us in the scriptures. It's his wisdom that he revealed directly to them and then through them to us. And that's why at the CU, we put such a high premium on using the Bible when we evangelize. It's actually one of the reasons we use Mark Uncover. Now, it's not that you can't share the gospel without the Bible. The Bible tells you the gospel, great, you've got the gospel, you can now talk it to somebody else if you're on the bus and you don't happen to have a Bible on you, at your sporting club on the weekend, whatever it is. And and, and it's not as if even as you speak those things, which you hope you're doing as you get those opportunities, that the Spirit can't work through your words and bring somebody to faith. We know that's true, history kind of tells us that. But the thing that we hope that you do and the hope we understand is that wherever possible, we take people back to the Bible, the place where we can say with confidence, here is where God's truth and wisdom rests. That's why we put a high premium on evangelism through things like Mark Uncover. Now, if that was a whirlwind, that's okay. Let me summarize it really, really simply and we'll get back on the train. The wisdom of God can only be revealed by the Spirit of God. And it has been. To God's apostles, and then through the apostles, to us. Cool. Thirdly, God's message of wisdom. It's not just of this age. Uh, not, not of this age, sorry. It, it's revealed by the Spirit. But finally, thirdly, it's only understood by spiritual people. This takes us to verse 13. Let's have a look at what it says. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. That last phrase there, uh, you can check this in your footnote if you've got an NIV, could easily read, just as easily read, explaining spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And I think that's a better translation here because of what comes next. In verses 14 and verse 15, what does Paul do? He identifies two types of people that he's speaking to. And only the, the spiritual person listens. So let's have a look at verse 14. Verse 14, the person without the Spirit, literally the natural person, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Verse 15, the person with the Spirit, literally the spiritual person, makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. So we see two types of people, those without the spirit and those with the spirit. Let's look at each of one of those in turn. Those without the spirit, they don't accept the things that come from the spirit. And what that means is the cross of Christ, the message of the gospel, it remains foolish to them. Why? Because you need spiritual eyes to discern spiritual truth. So not only does the Spirit reveal the wisdom of God to his apostles, he also illuminates the hearts of those who hear that wisdom so they will understand and accept the gospel that Paul preaches. And this shouldn't surprise us, because one of the things that we have seen throughout 1 Corinthians is that God is sovereign and in control of salvation from the very beginning all the way through to the very end. And so it makes sense that his spirit will be active in every stage as well without the spirit of god nobody can understand the message of god's wisdom now in contrast to this person without the spirit the person with the spirit we're told there judges everything and nobody judges them now that's a confusing verse and it's a verse that has been seriously abused by people in the past people who want to put themselves above contradiction Especially Christian teachers. And the argument goes something like this. Because I have the spirit of God, I am in a position to judge all things. And therefore, no one can contradict me. Because to contradict me is to contradict the spirit of God. And you would never do that, right? So what I say goes. And that's a recipe for spiritual deception and abuse. And that's not what Paul is talking about. What is Paul talking about? Well, here's the question for you. What is being judged here in this passage? What's the thing that Paul is defending and has been over the last couple of weeks as we've been working through the letter? It's Paul's message, right? It's the foolish message of the cross. And so what Paul means here when he says that this person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things is that it is only somebody with the Spirit of God who is in a position to properly assess the wisdom of God. Why? Because he has the Spirit of God. And so what Paul means, therefore, when he says that such a person is not subject to merely human judgments, well, what he's not saying is this. He's not saying that Christians are kind of somehow exempt from judgment and examination, like we can just do what we want and nobody can assess how we live or how we think. Now, that's not true. Every Christian needs to be tested. Every Christian needs to be held to account. And if we um, uh, have ears to hear, we kind of think about it. The world has said a lot of things to us recently that we need to listen to. But what he's saying is this. At the level of affirming or denying the gospel, the truth of the gospel, the world cannot say whether Christians are right or wrong. They simply do not have the spiritual resources to do it. Now, can we talk about cricket for a moment? Uh, really, really important. I hate cricket. I know I've just lost a friend. <laughs> That's right, that friendship wasn't all that valuable to me anyway. <laughs> I'm sorry, brother, we can make amends later. I just don't understand it. Like, you, you have it's a dude with a bat and he hits a ball for five days in a row. It makes absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. Okay, now, t- take me, the one who's just lost all the friends in the room, Imagine that you put me in a test match in the commentator's booth and you got me to comment on the game uh, for the whole of the game. Would you listen to what I had to say? (laughs) Caleb's laugh says it all. Absolutely not. Because, and this is where the analogy gets really sketchy, right? The spirit of cricket does not dwell within me. Right? It's not that I say, like, nothing I say would have any impact on whether you understood the game or not. Even if I got it right, you would ignore me because you know that I have no knowledge of the game. And I want to say that that is the same with the world's judgment of the cross. Without the spirit of God, you are not able to see the gospel as God's wisdom and it remains foolishness to you. So you can't make a judgment either way. But if you hear the message and you see it for what it is, the message of wisdom, then that is a sure sign that the Spirit of God is at work within you. And so to summarise, the message of the cross is a message of wisdom and it's understood only by spiritual people. And so with that all in mind, I think we should turn our attention to our final point, which is proclaiming Christ's wisdom. What are the implications for this for our evangelism? Now, I asked at the beginning, how is it that we can share the gospel without arrogance? I'll ask that again now that the person's left. (laughs) How is it that we can share the gospel without arrogance? And I want to say the answer is because of the work of the Spirit of God in people's hearts. So, three quick points. Number one, confidence. The work of God's Spirit allows us to proclaim Jesus with confidence. Why? Why? Because it's the Spirit of God that has revealed to us God's hidden truth. This is really important to get. Our truth claims are not our own. They're God's. Not Paul's. God's. And as such, unbelievers are not in a position to judge us. They have not been given the Spirit of God. that doesn't mean that we hold them in contempt they actually may have some really good things to say and in the last couple of decades particularly as regards systematic abuse in the church and those sorts of things they've had some really hard and really true and helpful things to say that we need to sit up and pay attention to but when it comes to the gospel the core content of the gospel the accusation of sin the call to repent the need to submit to the lordship of jesus any accusation of bigotry or divisiveness or hate speech attached to any of those things it does not stick because they do not know what they are talking about they do not have the spirit of god and so it can give us confidence but number two let's talk about humility because the work of god's spirit causes us to proclaim jesus with humility the fact that god's wisdom has been revealed to us not only gives us confidence but gives us great cause for humility because we are all passive receivers. It was God's agency that first revealed his wisdom to Paul, and then later it was God's agency that illuminated its truth to us. And so the moment that you start thinking that you know better than anyone else out there for any other reason than God's freely given gift, well, that's the moment that you've forgotten the gospel. That's the moment that you forget that you are an object of God's grace, saved by his mercy alone. And so we must proclaim Jesus from a place of complete dependence and humility with a keen awareness that but for the work of the Spirit of God in our foolish and dark hearts we would not see the truth. We would not see Christ. So confidence, humility, we need both. Because confidence without humility, it's arrogance. And humility without confidence, well, it's silence. But when you combine the two, what you end up with is a God-honouring witness to the wisdom of God in Christ finally number three prayer the necessity of God's work in his spirit means that we pray if it's true that the spirit of God alone makes the foolish heart wise in all of its judgments then it must be to him that we turn when we seek the salvation of those around us you see no proclamation of the message of the cross is complete without prayer And whether or not you're praying is a measure of whether or not you have understood the truth of this passage and the role that the Spirit plays in opening our blind eyes to see the wisdom of God. And so let me ask you, do you pray for your loved ones, those who don't know Jesus? Because that's an expression of what we see here in this passage. So three things, confidence, humility, prayerfulness, all because of what the Spirit does for us. And I just want to end and say, how wonderful would it be if those three things were the things that marked the Christians at CU, that marked the Christians in the churches of Perth. And just imagine for a moment, if they did, what would that look like? What would God do? I really hope to see that. And the way that we do that is by together, banding together with confidence, humility, on us.